Good afternoon, everyone. The statement, every eye will see him, that is quoted from Revelation chapter 1 and and verse 7 was inquired about by one of our members some time ago, and I responded to the question concerning this subject and uh, actually posted uh, an article some time ago on our website about the subject, but I thought for today in the sermon as a way of reminder and to get our minds focused on this subject, and many of you may not have read the article or perhaps if you did read it, did so quite some time ago. But I thought it would be good to focus our minds on the subject of Christ's coming and some other matters concerning His coming, especially given the time of year we're in, and we will be observing the feast here in a few weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, and atonement, but the question was, will every eye actually see Jesus when he returns? Is this to be taken literally? And the writer stated, I always figured Christ's return would be a big event that would shake the whole earth. Of course, he could come like lightning. He could come any way that he wants. He could take a day or it could be instantaneous. From Scripture, it seems that there will be no doubt when his coming takes place. The statement, even they who pierced him, to what is that referring? And also a question related to these was asked, do the armies of the world unite to fight Christ at His coming, or do they just end up in Israel fighting each other? And is the beast defeated militarily before Christ's return? So let's begin with the statement, every eye will see Him. And I have no doubt that that is a literal statement that Christ will come in such a way that every every person on the earth will be able to see Christ as he returns. Now, perhaps not for one reason or another, not literally every single person will see Christ. For example, there will be probably people who are blind who really aren't able to see anything and situations of that sort, but for all practical purposes, it appears that Christ will be visible as he returns to people of the earth so that those who are able and in a situation where they could see Christ coming from the heavens will be able to see him. In other words, he will be visible to 
peoples all over the face of the earth when he comes. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 26, it says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. In Mark 14 and verse 62, when the Sanhedrin was questioning Jesus as to whether he was the Messiah or actually the high priest, I believe specifically, was asking Jesus if he were the Christ or the Son of God. And in Mark 14, verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In Matthew 24 and verse 27, Jesus said, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then in verse 30 of Matthew 24, it says, Then the, son, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now all of these scriptures imply that His coming will be visible to a wide audience. But we've already read where it says, Every eye will see Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. In this last verse I read, it says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So that certainly implies very strongly that Christ's descent from the heavens will be visible to everyone on earth. All the tribes of the earth, all the nations of the earth. In Matthew 26, verse 64, is another place where this same occasion is being spoken of where he was being examined before the Sanhedrin. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said, Nevertheless I say to you, Thereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power coming on the clouds of heaven. And then in Luke 21 and verse 26, men's hearts uh, beginning with verse 26, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of these things which are coming on the earth. This is a prophecy from uh, Jesus on Mount Olivet. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming. In a, great, in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, one might ask, how could everyone on the earth see Christ descending from heaven? Well, there may be several ways that that could be accomplished, but certainly one way that it could be done very easily is that Christ could simply circle the earth as he descends. And by circling the earth several times, 
Now, remember, it says that he will be coming with power and great glory. He will, his coming will, he will be visible with his glorious power as he descends, probably shining like the noonday sun, perhaps even eclipsing the sun in the brilliance of his presence. And so, with that kind of glory and power being visible and Christ circling the earth perhaps several times as he descends, then he could easily make himself visible to people all over the earth. Now, how long is it going to take for Christ to accomplish his coming? And and is it is it going to be something that occurs over a period of a several days? Or will it occur in stages, as some teach? How will that be accomplished? Well, there are a number of scriptures that tell us that Christ will come suddenly and at a time unexpected by most people. In Mark 13, verse 36, Jesus was illustrating a point by a parable, and he said in this parable, referring to his coming, he said, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. This was a parable having to do with the coming of a bridegroom, and in this parable, he was pointing out that we are servants and that we must not be asleep. We must not be caught asleep, spiritually asleep, when Christ returns because he is coming suddenly. Now, This word suddenly, the Greek word translated suddenly here is exiphanes. And the same word is used in Acts chapter 9 verse 3 in connection with Paul's, or with Christ's appearance to Paul or Saul. And it says, as he journeyed, this is speaking of Saul, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now this is the same word used in Mark 13, verse 36, of referring to the coming of Christ. It's translated suddenly in both places in the New King James Version. And so he is coming suddenly as the light suddenly appeared and shone around Saul from heaven, something that occurred all of a sudden. It wasn't something that just uh, was gradual and then a light that just gradually grew brighter over a period of a day or two or three days or several days. 
it appeared suddenly. And there are a number of scriptures that indicate that's exactly how Christ's coming will be. It will be sudden, and it will occur very quickly in, in terms of the time it takes from the first appearance of Christ in the heavens to the time that he sets foot on the, on the Mount of Olives. Now, there will be enough time for the saints to be resurrected and to meet Christ in the air, but that probably will not take very long at all. The indications are it will, will occur very quickly. In Matthew 24, verse, beginning with verse 44, Jesus said, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus said for us to be ready because he will come at a time that is not expected. Like a thief in the night. Now, thieves who are going to come and break into somebody's house usually don't advertise in advance exactly when they're coming or necessarily even the fact that they're coming. Now, Jesus has told us that he would come, but he has not told us when he would come. What he has told us is that he would come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly, and that therefore we are to be ready. By the way, I might mention that there are several scriptures in Revelation that also refer to the fact that Jesus is coming as those scriptures are translated, those verses or words are translated quickly in the, in the New King James. And the word in Revelation where that reference to Christ coming quickly, those references occur, is the Greek word taku, and that word could also be translated suddenly. It could be translated quickly, but it could also be translated suddenly. Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. He is coming suddenly and unexpectedly. In Luke 12, beginning with verse 39, Jesus said, But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So over and over again, Jesus told us to be ready. In other words, we ought to be ready all the time. We ought to make sure at all times that we are prepared for Christ's return because we don't know precisely when it will occur. Now, we may have an idea that it is drawing close by observing the signs of the times, by observing prophetic events as they unfold. And we, we're seeing prophetic events unfolding before our very eyes in these days, things that were prophesied to happen leading up to Jesus' return. We've already seen, as I will discuss in more detail later on in a different sermon, or plan to at least, God willing. We've already seen how Israel 
the nations of Israel, particularly Great Britain and the United States, have risen to unprecedented power and wealth. But we've also seen the rapid decline in under, under, uh, underway currently of both Great Britain and the United States and other Israelite peoples, nations associated with the people of Israel, we're seeing their decline. We're seeing curses that are occurring that God said would be sent upon us through our dis because of our disobedience. And we're seeing these things intensify. And we've seen the nation of Judah, which was a stateless people, a stateless nation for almost 2,000 years. And, all, and, and suddenly they became a people who had a state and a homeland, which few people would have predicted before it happened. And that has made it possible, that has set the stage for various prophecies relating to Judah concerning the end time to be fulfilled as well. So we, we're seeing events prophesied long ago leading up to the coming of Christ, but we can't really accurately predict when Christ's coming will occur. Even seeing these things unfold, we don't know how long it's going to, to take for these all of these events that are prophesied to unfold before Christ returns. So, but we are told that He will come at a time that we do not ex expect. We're told to be watching. And we're told to be ready. By watching, we can have a, a, a fair idea that it is drawing very close, but we still probably will never be able to accurately predict the exact day and hour of Christ's coming before he actually comes. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with the first two, Paul wrote, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now in this analogy of A pregnant woman, a pregnant woman generally has a fair idea of when she is about due to have her baby. But I don't know of any woman who's had a baby who was able to predict the exact time that she would begin to have labor pains. And so again, 
it will come suddenly. And most people on the earth, with the exception of those who are obeying Christ's command to watch and be ready, most to, to, to most people on the earth, it will be completely unexpected. And they will be peace, saying peace and safety, many of them thinking that life is going to go on for them as always, and they'll be able to continue in their prosperity and comfort, even though many catastrophes will have occurred by that time to other people. But then Christ will come, and things will change very, uh, very radically and suddenly for everyone on the earth. In Revelation 16, verse 15, Jesus said again, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So we are again reminded to watch and keep his garments means that we are to be found living lives faithfully toward God in obedience to his word, in obedience to his commandments, striving to overcome, striving to live righteously in, in imitation of Jesus Christ, lest he walk naked and see they see his shame. In other words, he will be both unprepared and also not found in the garments of righteousness. Righteousness is sometime, sometimes referred to as a garment that one wears. Cloaked or clothed, we're to be clothed with righteousness. And if we're not clothed with righteousness, in this analogy, we would be found naked and we would be ashamed to be found naked at the time of Christ's return. So we need to be striving constantly and always and consistently to live righteously, to repent of our sins to overcome and to be faithful to God and to be ready for His coming, for Christ's coming. Another indication of the sadness of Christ's coming that we've already touched on is that His coming will be comparable to lightning. In Matthew 24, verse 27, Jesus said, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then in Luke 17, verse 24, Jesus said, For as the lightning that flashes out of the one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in His day. Now, lightning appears suddenly and unexpectedly. 
Now you might, you might see thunderstorm, uh, thunderstorm clouds in the sky, and you might expect that eventually you're going to see some lightning if you look toward the clouds. But even so, the lightning is going to come suddenly, and it, and you're not going to be able to predict exactly when the lightning will flash. And lightning is generally visible over a very wide area because it occurs usually thousands of feet in altitude in the atmosphere. So it's visible to a wide area over the earth. Now, some commentators have understood these verses to signify the breaking of the dawn when the sun appears over the horizon and suddenly lights up the whole sky from east to west. And that is a possible meaning. But more often, the term estrape in the New Testament means lightning or something comparable to lightning. Not that the other explanation is necessarily impossible. And either way, the analogy is one of suddenness and wide visibility. Suddenness and wide visibility. In Ezekiel 43 and verse 2, we read where Ezekiel saw a vision related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there in Ezekiel 43 and verse 2, it says, The glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. In 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 16, it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So we're told that Christ will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We're told in Revelation 11 and verse 15 that when Christ returns, there will be the sound of a trumpet. It will be at the time of the seventh trumpet. And it says in Revelation 11 and verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the time of Jesus Christ's coming. And now whether this is a literal trumpet or a sound that is like a trumpet, we're not told precisely but it is described as a trumpet. It could be metaphorical, but 
in any case, it's going to be a sound that sounds like a trumpet sounding, and no doubt it will be very loud, announcing to perhaps the whole world that Christ is coming. And it says that at the very same time that Jesus Christ returns, at the sound of this trumpet, the dead in Christ are resurrected. Now, how long would that take to occur? Would it take several days? Would it take an entire day? Exactly how long will that take? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, speaking of the first resurrection, it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So this leaves no doubt about the time of the resurrection. It's not going to be something spread out over days or weeks or even hours. It says, in a moment at the twinkling of an eye. In other words, virtually instantaneously at the sound of the last trumpet. It says, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So the resurrection will occur instantaneously in conjunction with the coming of Christ. And this will occur very quickly. We're told as we already read, I believe, that the saints will rise at his coming to meet him in the air. But that too will not need would not need to take very long to occur. Now, there is no indication in Scripture that Christ's coming will take several days, nor even necessarily an entire day. Now, there will be events related to Christ's coming that probably will occur over the 24-hour period that he returns and actually several days the Bible indicates may occur between the the time of Christ's coming for example and the final battle in Jerusalem and during that time Jesus will be will be executing judgment on the earth and he will be on the earth. But there's no indication that there will be multiple second comings or supposed stages of his second coming as many have speculated. Now I'm not going to go into to the details about that particular subject today, but we do have an article that covers it in some detail entitled, How Many Comings? And another article entitled, Marriage Feast Parables, that discuss the events relating to Christ's coming, especially events related to what will happen in conjunction with His coming and immediately after His coming. But the analogies used in other clear statements of the Bible 
should be sufficient, are sufficient in my mind, to falsify any idea that there will be multiple second comings, so supposed second comings, which would re really be not just second comings, but third comings and so forth. But these notions are not compatible with Scripture. The consequences of his second coming, however, will continue for the rest of eternity. And there will be a number of things that will occur after Christ's return that are prophesied in Scripture. Now, we read that those who pierced him will see him coming. And who does that refer to? Well, in Zechariah 12, verse 10, we can see that it refers, among others, to the Jewish people. Because it was the leaders of the Jews who instigated under Satan's influence, Jesus' crucifixion. Now, of course, the individuals that were involved in that have long since died, but most of the Jewish people continue to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And in Zechariah 12, verse 10, in relation to Christ's coming, coming of the Messiah, it says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then, and this is at the time of his second coming, then they will look on me whom they pierced. This is speaking of the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will look on, on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So at the time of Christ's coming, the Jewish people will repent and be prepared to accept and receive Christ as their Savior and their King and their Messiah. But those who pierced Jesus are not, are not uh, confined to the Jewish people. Because Gentiles were also involved in the murder of Jesus Christ. It was a Roman soldier who actually thrust the spear through Jesus' side, which caused him to bleed to death very rapidly. Now, he'd already lost a lot of blood, but it was the Romans who actually crucified Jesus and thrust a spear through his side, even though they were egged on by the leader's of the Jews and a Jewish mob. In John 19, verse 34, says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. 
And he who has seen has testified that his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be filled, fulfilled. Not one of his bones should be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And those looking on Jesus when he was pierced were not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And as I said, it was a Roman soldier who actually thrust the spear into Jesus' side. Also, Jesus was condemned by a Roman official. In Luke 23 and verse 23, we're reading here about the events that led up to the crucifixion and the crowd referring to Pilate, the Roman governor, says they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed, so Pilate gave sentence. Pilate was the Roman governor. Now Pilate had the authority to exonerate and release Jesus. And Pilate, in fact, had regarded Jesus as innocent and stated that he believed that Jesus was innocent. The just thing to do would have been for Pilate to simply release Jesus. But rather than do the right thing, he gave in to the demands of the mob of Jews demanding Jesus' crucifixion, and he's the one that gave the order for Jesus to be crucified. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. In John 19, verse 16, speaking of this event, it says, Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus, that is the Roman soldiers took Jesus and led him away. Also, it was Roman soldiers who divided Christ's garments and who beat him with a scourge and, as I said, actually crucified him, nailing him to the cross. In John 19, verse 23, it says, Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was a without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, Therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. In John 20 and verse 25, this was after Christ's resurrection, says we have, the other disciples said to Thomas, I believe it was in this case, we have seen the Lord, 
So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put his my hand into his side, I will not believe. The prints, as it's spoken of here, and the nails were put there by Roman soldiers. The hole in the side of Jesus was put there by Roman soldiers. In Psalm 22 is a prophecy concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. And actually there are a number of several places in the Old Testament where various aspects of Jesus' crucifixion were prophesied. But we'll read part of Psalm 22, beginning with verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of uh, to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus was slain. Also, we need to remember for the sins of the whole world. So, in a sense, it was all of mankind, all of humanity that is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ because had it not been for our sins, it would not have been necessary for Jesus to die to pay the penalty that sin incurs. So, all of us are guilty in a sense all of us carry a burden of responsibility for the death of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, we all pierced Jesus' side. In John 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Also in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, we're told, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also of the whole world.
And in Revelation 1 and verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So the implication is God holds the entire world responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, not just the Jews, not even just the Romans and Jews, but the entire world, all of mankind is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, it is all of us who pierced him. Now, concerning whether Christ will fight the armies, the Gentile armies gathered at Jerusalem at the time of his coming and shortly thereafter. We find that in Scripture, various places, that the armies will be gathered to Jerusalem and the vicinity of Jerusalem in Palestine and that Christ will intervene and destroy them before the whole earth itself is destroyed by the various fighting powers. Now, I won't go into detail about this, but it is discussed in some detail in our article, How Many Comings. But we need to take note of the fact that the coming of Christ occurs in conjunction with pouring out the seven last plagues. And while those plagues will affect more than just the beast power, their primary target is the beast. As we read in Revelation 16 and verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So the, we see that this first plague targets specifically those who have the mark of the beast and those who worship his image, which will include much of the world. In Revelation 16 and verse 10, it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. In Revelation 16 and verse 19, it says, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and this is speaking of spiritual Babylon, the seed of the harlot that is, that's associated with the beast. <clears throat> and it says the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God 
to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then speaking of the destruction of that harlot city, it says, Revelation 18, verse 8, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. At the very culmination of Christ's coming, Jesus will be fighting his enemies and will be engaged as his feet touch the Mount of Olives to which he will return. He will be immediately engaged in fighting against the Gentile armies in Jerusalem as is pointed out in Zechariah 14 and elsewhere. Now at that time, the beast power will have no doubt suffered major reverses militarily because there are other prophecies that indicate that armies from the east will overrun much of the territory where the beast power is located and other calamities will have occurred. But it will not be destroyed finally until Christ's coming. The seven last plagues are aimed, as I said, primarily at that power and will culminate in its final destruction. And you can read more details about those events because they're covered in some detail in Revelation chapters 16 through 19. And all of the, virtually everything in those chapters have to do with the imminent destruction of the beast power and Christ's judgment on it. So I would invite you to read the articles I've mentioned, How Many Comings and Marriage Feast Parables, for more information on this subject and be considering the subject of Christ's coming as we lead up to the Feast of Trumpets and the later feasts this fall.